to start a little bit different than I usually do. Um, I'm going to show you a short movie clip, it's three and a half minutes, from Les Miserables. You remember that musical? Well, it's, this isn't a musical, it's just the film. It's the one where Liam Neeson is um, Jean Valjean. So the protagonist, Jean Valjean, has just been released from 19 years in prison. And he's a bitter man because the reason he was incarcerated was because he stole bread for his starving sister. And so he was there 19 years in terrible conditions, and then finally they released him, and there he was. So he tried to look for a place to stay, tried to figure out what he's going to do, and, but his passport was yellow, which was the signal to anybody who asked for his papers that he was a convict. And so no innkeeper would allow him in. He ended up spending the first night of freedom out in the open, on the street, and become more and more angry and bitter, even than he was when he was still behind bars. But then this benevolent bishop offers him a shelter and a warm meal, brings him into the um, rectory, and that's where he is. But later that night, while the house is quiet and everyone is supposedly asleep, Jean Valjean gets up, steals the silver, and disappears into the night. And that's what we're going to see next. Powerful. You can see by the look on his face that this is the first time anybody has offered him grace, mercy. And there he is standing, guilty as all get out, but yet he's been redeemed, bought back by this silver and being a chance at a new life. So it was a gift. So what is he doing? He's standing and he's looking at a fork in the road. He has a choice to make there. Now, he did promise the bishop, <laughs> but now is he going to go through with it? Is he going to take that road that's going to lead him away from the other road, which was on the path to destruction? If he continued in what he was before this incident, it would not end well, and we all know it. But instead, he's being offered a different way, a way of redemption, a way of making good, a way of changing who he is and being a better man. And it's just a beautiful picture of that. Today we're going to look at another story when someone who stood, again, in the fork in the road. Like Jean Valjean, he, she was often offered mercy and grace, a chance at a new life, turning away from her familiar path of sin and destruction. She was the adulterous woman. We read about in John chapter 8. So let's take a look at her story and see what she was offered. A chance to begin again. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, Teacher! This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Let's pray. God, your word is precious. It reveals such truth to us. Help us to understand the true meaning of being given a fork in the road, a chance to begin again. And um, I just pray for anyone here, Lord, that's struggling, that you would just use this message to um, encourage them in how much you love them and what you have given them in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, another sinner on the path to our own destruction. Another offer of undeserved forgiveness and grace. But to fully understand this account, we have to ask a couple of questions. You know me, I love my questions. Why did the religious leaders really bring the woman to Jesus? Well, that is a very easy question to answer because it's right in the text. John tells us. They had dark motives. They had more on their minds than just seeing a cheating wife punished for unfaithfulness. John tells us they were testing him so that they may have grounds for accusing him. Their motive was calculated. They wanted to say, have him say something that could be used against him. And you know, it wasn't the first time that that had happened before. In Mark, we read the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they were attempting to entrap him with another tricky question. Was it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar? Now, what they were trying to do was get him to either speak against Mosaic law or speak again against Roman law. And so they, every, either answer, he's going to be condemned, right? Because the Jews hated their Roman oppressors, and the, the tax thing was really something that stuck in their gut. And, uh, but to deny that they should pay the tax, that would not put him in good standing with the local Roman authorities, yeah, I have to shake your head a little bit. I was reading that little passage in Mark, and I thought, what in the world were they thinking? He was God. And they thought they were going to, like, have one over on him? No. You try that sometime. See if you can fool God. I'll give you a hint. Not going to end well. Jesus, of course, wasn't fooled by anything they said. As a matter of fact, he didn't rise to the bait at all. He pointed out the likeness of Caesar that was imprinted on the coin that they held and said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So now, just like that last time with this adulterous woman, um, the leaders are standing over her and thought he had no way out. He was either going to offend the Romans or offend the Jews and somehow they would use it to destroy him. It's a matter of the Roman rule versus, or Roman law versus the Jewish law um, in punishment for adultery. In Jesus' time, Rome allowed the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, to rule the people. But there was one exception. They could not decide on um, capital punishment. They could not uh, put someone to death. That had to be through Romans, which is why the Jews had to bring Jesus to Pilate before that they could um, convict him of, of that, because Roma had to be the one that put him to death. So there's no acceptable answer here. 
The law of Moses prescribed a death sentence for those caught in adultery. And here's a verse about it in Deuteronomy. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. But in Roman law, adultery was not punishable by capital punishment. So, it, so you could not uphold the Jewish law and the Roman law at the same time. To, to, to talk about the Roman restrictions would be essentially to speak against the law of Moses, but if you were going to uphold the Mosaic law, then you're speaking against the law of the Romans. So no matter how he answered, the Pharisees figured they had him. He was not going to be able to do something or talk about something. Um, it was going to get him into trouble. Another thing that signaled, besides John's making us alert, the dark motives, was the absence of the other person in that adulterous relationship, the man. Where the heck is he? You remember in Deuteronomy it said, both of them shall die. They caught her in the very act of adultery. That meant both lovers were present when they barged into the room or whatever happened. And so now they left the man behind and were only um, attacking the woman. So it seems like they were, they were not very interested in following Mosaic law at all. Otherwise, they would have had both of them there. So why then, knowing these evil motives, knowing what they were trying to do, Jesus was not an idiot, <laughs> son of God, you know that. So knowing their intent did not keep Jesus from giving them an answer. Because, and this is the thing that I had to kind of learn as I went through the Gospels and, 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 and thought about Jesus and his relationship with the people that he ran into, because Jesus loved the Pharisees. It's true. He spoke harshly to them. Why? Because he needed a wake-up call. And so for sure, um, but, but he was concerned for them. Um, because, and this is how I can really tell that's happening in this. The accusers and the accused are both dealt with in a parallel fashion. So first, each of those begins with Jesus stooping down to write in the sand. So he stooped down and wrote in the sand. Then he stands to address them. First he did it with the Pharisees, and then he did it with the fallen woman. Exact same motions. And his words to each of them, Pharisees and the woman, are a pronouncement about sin, and he offers both a chance to turn away from that sin. I believe that Jesus intended to use this incident in a momentous way for every single person that was involved, both the accusers and the accused. First, there was the woman. Had Jesus refused to answer in their anger, a mob may have turned on her and lynched her, even in light of the Roman restrictions. It happened in Acts 7 uh, when Stephen was preaching and he was stoned to death. Same laws were still in effect. His intervention on her behalf right there was probably saved her life. Now, until Jesus spoke, woman's treatment had been abominable. They regarded her as an object to be used um, to suit their malicious purposes. Her fate, her very life, didn't matter at all to the Pharisees. She was expendable. But Jesus showed, stood out to show her a different way, God's way. Because God's ultimate desire is not to destroy, but to restore 
Second Peter tells us that he's not willing that any should perish. And then there were the Pharisees. They had no goal of redemption. There was nothing constructive about their dealings with the woman. They had already condemned her, let's face it, and written her off. Moving her toward restoration didn't even cross their minds. So the Pharisees needed to be shown God's way as well. They regarded themselves as holy, spending their lives carefully observing the law, doing every single little thing that it said, uh, both Mosaic and the oral traditions. As far as they were concerned, they were righteous. They had the right to stand in judgment of others. But let me tell you, that was nothing short of delusional. They needed mercy. They needed grace every bit as much as the woman that they condemned. They desperately needed a reality check. And by the way, do you wonder what Jesus was writing in the sand? I always did, and I had one commentator that made a couple of suggestions. Total guesswork, but it does make some sense. One that he said there were two verses maybe he would have written. Maybe, guess, right? You shall not give a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be malicious witness. Another one he might have written. A false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will perish. Just guesses. But it might have been at least the thoughts that Jesus was having as he wrote in the sand. And by the way, the word is graphia, so the verb, so it was letters that he was writing. But in, in any way, both needed forgiveness. The group of Pharisees and the woman. The Pharisees just weren't that different from the woman. Every, pers every person in that courtyard needed a personal relationship with God. All of them were currently on board a sinking ship. So Jesus took the opportunity to introduce the ideas of mercy and grace and urge one, each one toward redemption. So this is what he said. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, from the oldest down to the youngest, the Pharisees crept away. And pretty soon, there was no one left. Jesus had called their bluff. So why did the Pharisees react in that way when they heard Jesus' answer? Well, Jesus' answer actually wasn't a new concept for the Pharisees. They, it was straight out of Mosaic Law that he's talking, believe it or not, and um, something they already knew by heart. This is what Deuteronomy dictates. Those who provide testimony against the sinner be the very ones that initiate the stoning. So, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward, afterward the hand of all the people. So the accusers were supposed to cast the first stone. But here's the thing. Their words were going to lead to someone's death, very likely. But if they gave anything but an honest testimony, the witnesses would have blood on their hands. Worse, they were in danger of being stoned themselves if they were found out they were in a lie. Deuteronomy also commands, if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he intended to do to his brother. Put him to death. If the Pharisees had done anything to entrap the woman so that they could challenge Jesus, then by law they were putting their very lives at risk by reporting this in the temple courts. So one by one, they left. 
So then Jesus asked her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Then he says, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. That little phrase, sin no more, that gave me some trouble. Because I don't know about you, I would not have been able to do that. I mean, even if I start every morning, okay, Lord, that's it. No more sinning. You know what happens. Before breakfast, even. Right? So why would Jesus instruct the woman to sin no more? Isn't that impossible? Well, she was without hope of restoration. She could do nothing to pay restitution for her sin, nothing that would earn forgiven. But Jesus was offering what neither she nor anyone could ever deserve, unmerited favor, mercy, grace. But it's important to note that even after being caught in her sin, Jesus did not condemn her. In John 3, it says, Jesus said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus was offering her grace. She was guilty. They caught her in the act. But he was moving her forward from her guilt. No trial. No punishment. He would pay for that sin himself on the cross. So now, she stood at the fork in the road. He offered her grace. Chance to start over. Abandon the old. Embrace, embrace the new. Live under the covering of forgiveness and mercy. And Jesus knew it. So he gently urged her in the direction she ought to go. Go and sin no more. So what? What does that encounter mean for us today? You know, about, I don't know, a long time now, 2016, I came down with this weird nerve thing that landed me in the hospital with the worst headache I'd ever have in my life. Um, for a month and a half, I couldn't eat a thing but about a tablespoon of grits every day. And some of you were here when that happened, and I was sick as a dog, and I could not get well, and I was exhausted, and I just couldn't even hardly walk down, up and down the stairs. It was a terrible time, and Steve was a wonderful caretaker for me, but it was, it was, it was bad. I lost 42 pounds without trying, <laughs> which my doctor, once I got better and I started going back to my normal stuff, which took me actually a full year before that finally happened, but when I went in... She said to me, and, you know, she's very happy I lost 42 pounds because that was her life's dream for me. And so I came in, and I had started gaining some of it back because now all of a sudden I could eat again, and eat I did. And so we, little by little, all that weight came right back on. And when I went back to the doctor, and I'd fully gotten back to where I had started and before the big bad illness, she said to me, that was a gift, and you squandered it. <laughs> She's kind of mean sometimes. We're kind of scared of her. <laughs> I lost the opportunity. I stood at a fork in the road. I could have kept that weight off. And I'll tell you what, keeping weight off is a lot easier than taking weight off. And yet, I didn't. But there's times in our lives as believers that we face a fork in the road. As believers. Maybe it's because you've made some terrible mistake. Maybe you've done it and made a choice that caused pain or heartache for you or for someone else. Maybe it's a grievous sin, one of the big bad ones. Maybe a failed relationship. Maybe a devastating change in circumstances. Maybe you've just realized just how bad you really are. 
Some circumstances are dramatic enough that it brings us to a temporary halt on that road that we're traveling. We stall out. But here's the thing. We're not traveling the road alone. Jesus has been with us step by step. And as we face this new fork, he again guides us forward. Because you know what? Jesus hasn't condemned us either. God has removed our condemnation and our guilt. We've already been forgiven. He's forgiven us. He paid for the sin of the whole world by dying on the cross. And those of us who have chosen to believe in him have already been given grace and mercy. Is that true for like after we have that and we're Christians and we're supposed to be following him and we take a big fall, a big fall? Well, maybe this time we've gone too far, that this time he won't be able to forgive. If that's how you think, you would be wrong. Because scripture tells us that God's mercy is new every single morning. I say that verse to me all, myself all the time because it, it's always there. It's always present. He's always offering it. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Grace, merit that we cannot earn. That's what he gives us every single day. So we were saved by grace and we live by grace. And he's faithful to meet that need. You know, Jean Valjean, he chose the right path. He sold the silver and the candlesticks and became a wealthy man and then in turn took care of the poor. Why? Because that bestowing of grace, undeserved forgiveness and mercy changed everything for him. Well, what about you today? How has the grace and mercy of God affected your life? Um, Many years ago, I was uh, mentoring a group of young women And my friend Heather told me a story that she had heard from a speaker while she was attending Biola College. And this story has stuck with me because it's just so profound. The speaker compared his audience to a butterfly, a butterfly that had just emerged from the cocoon. All his life he'd been a caterpillar, and now he was a butterfly. And he's going around and floundering around, flopping around in the dirt. Now another mature butterfly came forth, maybe even a few days older, went down to where the, bu- the butterfly was, and he said, what are you doing? Oh, I just wish I could fly. I'm just flopping around you like a, you know, because I'm a caterpillar. And the butterfly says, no, you're not a caterpillar. Now you're a butterfly, and now you can fly. He had the wings, but he wasn't using them. Go, sin no more. Have we learned to spread our wings and rise above the dust? Or are we still living in the defeat of our sin, the sin of our past, or maybe present? Sometimes, even if God's forgiven us, given us what we don't deserve, we can't forgive ourselves. And I remember Bill one time saying from this very podium, that's a problem, because if God's forgiven us, then we're calling God a liar by not being able to forgive ourselves, because we've been set free. Grace should be what guides everything we do from this moment on. So it's time to move forward. Jesus is the same Savior he was to the adulterous woman standing shivering in the courtyard. He knows where we are, where we need to go from here. He's already removed our condemnation and our guilt. It's time to look ahead and move forward, and his way is ours to choose. I want to end with a little quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives strength to the weary, and to the one who lacks, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I'm here to tell you, there is nothing to hold you back now. You've been given wings. Now fly. Let's pray. God, I thank you for that truth. It's true every day that your grace and your mercy have provided all that we need. I thank you, God, that you have a faithful presence with us, that we do not walk the road alone. Help us, God, to see ourselves through your eyes, how much that you, we are treasured because you love us that much. And just help us, God, to just relax into what you've already provided. Help us to be free and fly like we have wings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.